0: All right, let's go ahead now. Let's dive back into today's text to find out what made Jonah so angry and to consider how Jonah's anger or Jonah's disappointment with God can sometimes be mimicked by our own. Look with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 4 once again. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord. Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right? Is it right for you? To be angry. You know, of all the people in the book of Jonah who had a right to be angry, it wasn't Jonah. Of all the people in the book of Jonah, the only one who's ever depicted, though, as angry, as compassionless, as graceless, is Jonah. Is Jonah himself. However, again, if if anyone had a right to, and right is a key word, as we'll get to in in a few moments, if anyone had a right to be angry, it was God. Certainly, God had a reason to be angry with the Ninevites. The Ninevites, their wickedness had come up before God, as we saw in chapter 1. The wickedness of the Ninevites had come up before God in a way that was somehow more significant than the wickedness of any other city of that time. It came up as a foul stench in such a way that it grabbed hold of God's attention and God determined to deal with the Ninevites. God had a reason to be angry with these people. The the king, as we saw in chapter 3, the king there in Nineveh. He recognized the people's wrongdoing, their evil and their violence and so forth. It was no shock and no surprise to anyone that a good and a just and loving God would come about to deal with Nineveh. So God had a reason to be angry with the Ninevites. Now, to a lesser extent, well, not to a lesser extent, I guess in a a similar vein, that same anger could also have been directed to the Phoenician sailors that we saw in chapter 1, the ones who traveled with Jonah, sailors who prayed to idols, to idols rather than the true God for their salvation when the true God whipped up the storm that came down upon them. So God could have been angry at these Phoenician sailors. They prayed to false gods, they cast lots, they did any number of pagan things rather than doing what they should have done in their moment of trial. So God had reason to be angry with the Ninevites. He had reason to be angry with the Phoenician sailors. And of course, he had reason to be angry with Jonah, given Jonah's great disobedience that we see really uh, throughout this text, or at least uh, the uncompassionate, unloving heart that we see in this uh, prophet of God. Now, that said, although God alone had a right to be angry, although God alone had a right to be vengeful and wrathful against those who had transgressed, To each of these groups, to each of the groups that we've just talked about, God had showed compassion. Now, in dealing with Nineveh, what did He send them? He sent them a prophet. Instead of sending the sword, now the sword would have come if the people hadn't repented, but instead of sending the sword, so to speak, he sent them a prophet. He sent them a means for their uh, redemption, a means for them to turn around, to turn from their wicked ways and to turn toward him. So God sent them a prophet instead of a sword. When he dealt with the sailors, God saved them from the storm itself. He, He calmed the waters of his own wrath. And in dealing with Jonah, God did not leave Jonah to drown. Once he had been cast into that wrath, once he had been cast into the wrath, as we discovered in chapter one and chapter two, God sent this whale. God sovereignly decreed before Jonah had ever done right or wrong, sovereignly decreed this whale would be the means for Jonah's uh, redemption, so to speak. He sent this whale, he sent this traveling air pocket beneath the waves at the right moment upon Jonah's prayer. Uh, to, of course, swallow Jonah, but to be the means by which Jonah could survive uh, the, the waters, the wrath, so to speak, that he otherwise would have drowned in. So God did not leave Jonah to drown. He provided the means for his rescue. He provided grace. And so after repeatedly demonstrating to Jonah what grace looks like throughout this text, throughout the days leading up to this event where he's sitting on the east side of the city, after repeatedly demonstrating this grace to Jonah, God asked Jonah, almost incredulously, if you look at this text, he asked him in verse 4, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? The suggestion here is that Jonah's anger is unfounded, that it is not right. Now, of course, Jonah doesn't take the hint In fact, as we'll see, Jonah is going to double down on his original statement several times in the verses that will follow, telling God that, yes, it is right. Yes, God, it is right for me to be angry, given these circumstances, absolutely. It's right for me to be angry, even unto death. Have you and I ever thought that? When something has not gone the way we anticipated, When God has not responded in a way that we thought he ought to, have we ever decreed that he was wrong and we were right? Now, we might not have said so in in so many words. Most of us are are fearful of of, uh, a good smiting from on high, so we might not have said so in as many words, but many of us have thought this. In any case, Jonah tells God, yes, it is right. It is right, oh God. Now, that, of course, uh, it it, it sounds absurd, given the circumstances that Jonah had emerged from. It sounds absurd. Given the grace that he had received from God, it seems especially absurd. It it seems cruel. It seems cruel even that Jonah, this recipient of of grace, would actively look to deny grace, to deny that grace to others. Now, some commentators, I guess um, as an aside here, some commentators tried to rationalize Jonah's anger or tried to explain at least why he might have been as angry as he was by talking about the Ninevites and saying, you know, they were really bad. If you only knew how bad the Ninevites, these commentators suggest, uh, you would understand that Jonah had every right to be as angry as he was. He, his anger was completely justified because the Ninevites were so horrible. They fully deserved God's wrath. Of course, Jonah was irritated that they didn't receive it. So some commentators try to rationalize or explain Jonah's anger against the backdrop of his time and his culture and the culture of the Ninevites. Uh, But Scripture doesn't rationalize. It doesn't explain Jonah's anger. In fact, it challenges it. In fact, God challenges the legitimacy of Jonah's anger when he asks, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Okay, let's see what happens next as we look at verses five through eight. Verse five. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. I don't know what he expected, but in any case, verse six and the Lord God prepared a plant. I made it come up over Jonah. Look at the grace here that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to die than to live, Jonah says. So after leaving Nineveh, Jonah went somewhere to the east uh, to to sit down in order just to get a front row seat to whatever God was going to do next, to the Ninevites, in order to see what would become of the city, is what the Scripture says here. Now, once again, we don't really know what Jonah was thinking here or why he might still have expected God to do something horrific or something cataclysmic to the Ninevites. We don't know why he thought that something big was going to happen other than the great big thing that had already happened, which was the people's repentance. Why he was looking for a greater tangible visible miracle than that, we, we don't know. Um, at the very least we can speculate that by sitting down uh, to watch, you know, perhaps the city burn, it seems like Jonah may have been attempting to, to self actualize an outcome. That God had ruled out. Now, Jonah had picked a hot day to sit out under the sun, even under the makeshift shelter that he had made. And so, God, who never misses an opportunity for a good uh, a good object lesson, and so God raises up a plant. He sees Jonah's condition. He sees Jonah's plight. So he raises up a plant. He raises up the means for Jonah's aid, uh, for Jonah's shade. Uh, A plant that would uh, effectively protect him. In verse 6, we see that Jonah is very grateful for this. He recognizes the plant is of God. He's grateful for it. He's thankful. (coughs) We see in uh, in verse 6 the implication of both his thanks and his recognition of God's hand, because he's grateful to something other than himself. We see his recognition of God's hand in providing him this plant which had miraculously overnight risen up out of the ground. But what would Jonah's attitude be if that plant was taken away? I guess that's the second part of the object lesson here. We, we don't have to, fa- uh, to wait a whole uh, long time to find out, because the very uh, next morning or the very morning after the, sun, the plant had risen up, God withered. He sends this worm, he withers the plant, and he allows Jonah to be exposed To the sun's raging heat upon him. And as a result, as result as a result of this exposure to the heat of the sun, Jonah longs for death. Now, as we've said throughout this series, the book of Jonah is rife with gospel implications. You can't read about uh, something like the whale, for example, and not recognize that it was a means of of preservation from the wrath of God. Just as the ark in the time of Noah was a means of preservation from the wrath of God, which was represented in the waters, so was the whale a means of uh, uh, salvation. Again, a traveling air pocket under the waves to save Jonah from that which he otherwise would have drowned in. So the book of Jonah is rife with gospel implications. Now, another key one is right here. In verses 5 through 8, where the wrath of God is typified here by the, the heat of the sun. You see, God demonstrated to Jonah that the only thing safeguarding him from the heat and the suffering and the torment of that which would otherwise kill him was God's own gracious provision in the form of this plant. Uh, the intercession, so to speak, of this plant between the sun and Jonah was the means of Jonah's salvation from the heat and suffering and torment that the sun would otherwise bring. Do you see the gospel peeking through this text in, in this minor prophet in the, in the time and, and life of Jonah? If the provision that God had granted Jonah in the form of this plant was not there, if it was removed, if the intercession of this this plant between the son and Jonah, if it was not there, we see very quickly, in Jonah's own words, that he could not stand, that death would be imminent. Now, in a similar, of course, an even greater transcendent way, all of mankind is in danger. We're all in danger of the heat and the suffering and the uh, torment that comes from God's Wrath, from exposure to God's wrath. And apart from some sort of provision, apart from some sort of shade, apart from some sort of intercession between that wrath in ourselves, we die. Again, you see the gospel uh, peeking through in this text. Without some sort of provision between us and the the wrath of God, just as Jonah needs some provision between him and the Son, he could not stand, nor could we stand on that great day. So what God provided, Via the plant was a means of grace, a means of grace with with gospel implications anticipated, of course, the gospel and the fulfillment of of uh, Christ's person and work is a means of grace. But Jonah had also been a means of grace. The plant was a means of grace, but Jonah had also been a means of grace that had been provided for the Ninevites. He had been a means of grace provided for others to the Ninevites. Further, God is showing Jonah that man has no right, has no claim upon such grace, upon such provision. We cannot earn it, we cannot deserve it, and yet look at at the kindness of God stooping down to provide this plant. We cannot earn God's grace, we cannot deserve it, and yet he does not withhold it in the way that Jonah wanted to see it withheld from the people of Nineveh. All right, let's see the, Let's get to the heart of the matter here. Uh, looking at verse nine, verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, Jonah said, it is right for me to be angry, even unto death. Now, again, notice here, I, I emphasize this phrase. Notice that God asked Jonah if it is Right. Not if it's appropriate, not if it's suitable, but if it is right for Jonah to be angry. God doesn't ask if Jonah's anger is good. He asks if it is right. Now, do you see the implications of this? Do you see the implications of God's question unto Jonah? In essence, what God was doing, God was inviting... God was inviting Jonah to make a moral judgment regarding God's action. He he was, in effect, he was daring Jonah. He was daring Jonah to say that he, God, had done something wrong. He says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now, of course, Jonah said yes. And that's no small conclusion to jump to or, or to reach. Because if God is not righteous... If God is not just, if he's not righteous, uh, then he's not God and he's not God. Because if God is not right in any given circumstance, then he is failing to achieve standards that therefore must be greater than himself. And if there are standards that transcend or are external to God, then he isn't God. He has to strive to hit a bar that is above himself. That's the theological implication of saying that something that God does is not right in any one circumstance ever. But yet that's the conclusion that Jonah comes to. Jonah may have been a good prophet, but he, at least in this moment, was not the greatest theologian. Of course, he wasn't a great prophet at times uh, either on the basis of the way he approached the Ninevites. In any case, Jonah, he doesn't bat an eye. When God asks Jonah if it's right for him to be angry about the plant, he says, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It is right for me to be angry, even unto death. I stake my, my claim here. And if I die here on this hill with these being the last words that come out of my mouth, then yes, God, it is right. I will die an angry man, a legitimately angry man. Jonah is saying that his behavior and his attitude at that time was morally Ethically, spiritually appropriate given the circumstances. And the implication is, of course, that God must have blown it. That's what Jonah is saying. You see the belligerence of Jonah. This great recipient of grace was so slow to see that grace poured out on others. And then he, he, he confronts God on God's unrighteousness. Now, We, of course, can can beat up on Jonah. He's called the reluctant prophet and and other things. We can beat up on him a little bit here, and, and some of that would be legitimate. But the thing is, the mindset that Jonah had is not limited to Jonah. You and I, if we're being honest, regularly partake in this same mindset. How often have you and I heard God's word only to take God's word and to deny its suitability to our present circumstances? How many times have we, have, have we effectively said, it is not right for me to do what God has placed upon me? It is more appropriate, or it's better, or God will understand if I take this other course, this other course of action. After all, I know my circumstances. I have the wisdom to judge, and I determine that path A that God has set is maybe not as suitable as a path How often have you and I done that? How often have we heard God's word only to deny its suitability in any given circumstance in our lives and then to excuse or to legitimatize, as Jonah does, our response or our action or our sinfulness? How often do we tell God that he's got it wrong? Again, not in so many words, because none of us wants that good smiting from on high, so we probably don't say, God, you're wrong. But how many times have the attitudes and affections of our heart said as much? How many times have our behaviors declared as much to God and to the world around us? Now, individually we do this. Culturally we do this all the time. But it it also happens in in the larger uh, church. You know, the, the, the great debates... In the church world of our present day, often involve attempts by some uh, to circumvent, to go around what God has expressly declared in his word, to circumvent what God has expressly declared in order to excuse or to legitimatize decisions or behaviors or lifestyles that man prefers. Now, that's silly. It's silly. It's silly to try to high road God. It's silly to say, God, you're you're not with it, or at least your word isn't with it anymore. And God, if you're a good God, you're probably a progressive God. You're a God with the times, God. I'm sure you'll understand. God, my circumstances warrant this action. God, uh, the, the the needs of the world require us to act in a way that's a little bit different than what your word is regulated particularly with regards to the way we worship and approach you, it's silly. It's silly to try to high-road God. It's silly to insist on what must be our rightness or what we think is our rightness in the face of what, by contrast, must be his wrongness. Jonah did it, yes, and it was bad and it was wrong, We do it as individuals frequently, although we might not see it at that time for what it is. Culturally and even in the greater church we do this. How long-suffering God is with His people. How long-suffering He is with sinners and saints alike. How long-suffering He was with the Ninevites. How long-suffering He is with Jonah. Oh, that Jonah in that moment could have seen the grace that he was being bathed in. And then reflected that grace into his circumstances. Oh, that we would do the same. In any case, it's silly uh, to try to high road God and to take our own uh, path. Now, let's look at verses 10 through 11, or 10 and 11 to, to, to see this, uh, this grace expanded upon, I guess, with our remaining time. Verse 10. But the Lord said, the Lord said to Jonah, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night and should I not pity Nineveh that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons that cannot discern their right hand from their left and much livestock in essence God is telling Jonah that Jonah had shed more tears and was more concerned about the object that provided his physical comfort than he was about the spiritual condition, the spiritual fate of over 100,000 people. Now, some scholars look at uh, the 120,000 who can't know the difference between the right and the left hand as suggesting that might just be the children. There might be a great number of adults beyond that. Whatever the case is, it was a lot of people. And Jonah did not have the compassion... The empathy that he should have had for them. He was far more concerned about the disruption in his physical comfort than he was the spiritual faith of all those who were hanging by the, you know, the thinnest of strands, as, as Jonathan Edwards has said, over the deepest of pits. He had no compassion over them compared to the compassion he had over a plant, and God calls him on it. God calls him on it here in verse 10 and 11. You know, I wonder if this hits home to you and I today when something that provides our our material uh, comfort is removed from us, when something that provides the emotional, excuse me, the material comfort uh, for you and I on the the home front, does it make us more emotional, does it make us more consternated than if someone, say, down the street from us dies and goes to hell? If we were to lose even a tenth of our our salary or our possessions overnight, would we cry out, would we uh, moan, To a a greater degree than we do over the eternal loss of our peers, our contemporaries, our co-workers, our neighbors. I ask that rhetorically because I already know the answer. I know the answer because I know the answer in my own heart and I know that uh, I'm no better than Jonah. We're all in the same boat. You see, all of mankind has just wildly misplaced priorities. We have Wildly misplaced priorities, but fortunately for us, God doesn't. Fortunately for us, God does not. Our God is not insensitive to the needs of his people, nor is he insensitive to the mandates of his own judgment and what it would require of us. He wasn't even insensitive uh, to uh, the, the danger that the Ninevites were in. And God reminded Jonah this in verse 11 when he says, Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh, those who are in great danger? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, meaning the great large city of Nineveh, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot tell the difference between their right hand and their left? Should I not pity Nineveh? You can see God in the face of Jonah's gracelessness, in the face of Jonah's belligerence, showing compassion and grace and pity, and he's trying to get Jonah on board. Say, Jonah, the plant is nothing. These people, they're everything. I tell you, you know, this, this verse gives me a, a great deal of hope. Not simply just as a pastor who wants to see our city, and our community, our world changed, but as a sinner grateful. As a sinner grateful that God has changed me, that God had pity on me. You know, at one time we were all in the condition the Ninevites. At one time, we were all those who could not tell the difference between their right hand and their left. That was the condition of every last one of us. And the only thing that has changed since that time is the sovereign grace of God poured out upon us. The sovereign grace of God being poured out upon you and I who did not deserve it. It's the only thing that has changed from that time when we did not know between our right hand and our left. See, God He's a good God, and he does not have pity or compassion only on those people who get their acts together first. He does not hold off on the pity and compassion until people uh, clean up their lives, until they're finally living well. And we see that in these words, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity this paragon of wickedness who is in great danger of the wrath that befalls the wicked? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? It's by grace
1: that anyone in Nineveh
0: might ever hope to be saved. It was by grace that Jonah had any hope to be saved. It's grace by which you and I have any hope to be saved. The result of such grace, the result of such sovereign grace is that those who receive it, whether they're in Nineveh, whether they're in Wyoming, whether they're anywhere around the world today, the result of that grace is that the recipients of that grace are enabled and persuaded to come to God, to come to Christ in a way that they otherwise wouldn't if that grace had not been poured out upon them. How can we deny that grace to others? How can we deny to others the gift that has been poured out upon us? That is, in effect, the question that the book of Jonah ends with. And it's the basis by which all evangelism, all outreach, must begin. Let's pray. This has been a sermon by Pastor Toby Holt of Christ Presbyterian Church in Marietta, Georgia. If you would like to hear other sermons by Pastor Holt, please visit our website at www.christpca.org or you can find us on sermonaudio.com.